Hello, patrons. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga. Welcome back to another three articles. Uh, this is the second one we do. Thank you for thank you to everyone who gave us feedback on the first one. As you might imagine, all of that feedback was positive. This is why we're doing another one because you seem to have liked that format. So just to explain how this works, for those of you who might not have listened to the first one, each of us brings a recent article that they read that they think is relevant, interesting, uh, maybe terrible, uh, that's worth unpicking and discussing. So it's a way of us discussing three of their different themes or three different articles around the same theme uh, and exploring that to the greatest depth possible in the 40 or so minutes that uh, we've allocated ourselves to record this. Uh, before we get started, I just want to ask our patrons, uh, I, I know you already uh, donate very generously uh, and in return get episodes like this, but I also wanted to ask you guys uh, if you could please drop us reviews on iTunes, Facebook and wherever else, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. You do sound quite desperate when you say that. In fact, what you should say is don't under any circumstances review us, we're too, we're too good, we're too, we're too popular. Then people will think, oh, wow, this really is a great podcast to be a patron of. <laughs> right. So to get this started, uh, I'm going to start off because mine is a much more uh, current news item, I think, than the other two. The, the other two are, I, I, we, we, do, we have actually pre-planned this to a certain degree in, in so far as we've all read the articles as well. Um, so we have something to discuss. So the first one is a, an article about Bolivia. Um for those who've been uh, under a rock for the past two days, there has been what seems like a coup in Bolivia. And I personally been searching around trying to find something good written on, on, on the country on what's just happened. Uh, and th- that I haven't found very much. Uh, what I have found was one which uh, takes a sort of heterodox line uh, with regard to this, uh, with regard to the coup, at least heterodox from a uh, from a left-wing point of view, let's say. So the article is uh, Bolivia, the extreme right takes advantage of a popular uprising. Uh, It was published on the 11th of November. We're recording this on the 12th of November. So it was published just yesterday. The uh, author is Raul Sivecki, who is a uh, journalist um, and a popular educator um, who accompanies grassroots processes in Latin America, his bio says. Um, it's published on Toward Freedom, though it was actually translated. It was originally published in, in Spanish on a different uh, website. So, I mean, the article basically um, runs through a point of view which runs contrary to the notion that this is, let's say the crude view, which is this is a U.S.-led CIA coup uh, with the military kicking out a popular leftist leader uh, to take control of uh, Bolivia's natural resources, in particular its lithium mines, uh, and this is gonna this is led by the extreme right in Bolivia, and um, and basically the, yeah Evo Morales is, um, was legitimately elected and was taken out. Now I'm not saying that any of that, or I'm not saying that all of that is untrue. In fact, large Parts of that are true, but what this article does here is it pokes certain holes in the notion, primarily that uh, Evo Morales retained the support from popular organizations across the country. Uh, what it points out primarily is that the, the let's say, ushering out of, or well, no, let's be honest about it, the military pushed him out, and that, for me, is a coup. But what this article argues is that, well, I'll, I'm going to read the first paragraph because it's puts it more succinctly than I will trying to retell it. 
What caused the fall of the government of Evo Morales in Bolivia is an uprising by the people of Bolivia and their organizations. Uh, their movements demanded his resignation before the army and police did. The Organization of American States sustained the, uh, the government until the bitter end. So, guys, thoughts on this, first of all. Um, have you been following what's been happening in Bolivia? And does this uh, argument presented here uh, challenge your views in any way? I thought it was really interesting, actually. And it's telling, in a way, that there has been um, kind of cross-conflicting um, currents, I suppose, in um, in the news and the people that I follow with respect to Bolivia. So people that I respect on um, having contrasting views, which is unusual on most news stories. And most news stories, the kind of people that I, um, whose views I admire and respect tend to take a consistent line, whereas this time the Bolivia stories seem to fragment people's views, which I suppose um, reflects something about events in the country itself, mm. that some people were um, going with the line, focusing on the, um, the military ousting a elected leader with the um, support of the White House, and on the other hand, people drawing attention to the fact that um, there was the constitutional shenanigans of Morales and also that there, the um, people protesting in the streets are much more than just kind of um, violent thugs on the side of sinister paramilitary forces or what have you. And I think this, um, this article teases out some of the complexities of the situation at the moment very effectively. And um, so, you know, I mean, I think it's good that we've chosen it and rec we recommend it to our readers. It's not, um, I can't say that the politics it promotes are, um, are particularly edifying, but the analysis of the situation where it draws attention to the fact that um, Morales has overreached his mandate, um, has tried to jerry-rig, kind of, you know, engage in kind of constitutional shenanigans to prolong um, to prolong his um, hold on power beyond what is constitutionally mandated, has overreached his popular base, has engaged, according to this article at least, um, and also in other kind of news stories, engaged in um, thuggery as part of to provoke and also to to in well to um, intimidate opponents but also to provoke reactions from the other side it's a very it's a very useful snapshot of what seems to be a fantastically confused um and complex story which mm -hmm. is more than just the military coup so i suppose the the takeaway line is that as obviously as democrats and as um supporters of pro popular and progressive forces always to be um, deeply suspicious and hostile of the use of military power in politics. But at the same time, on the other side, there's seems to this uh, seems that uh, tremendous questions also have to be put to um, what Morales was trying to do and what his supporters, how his supporters have tried to maintain him in power. Mm, I think one of the aspects of the article that was particularly interesting is, I guess, the way that it's trying to... <clears throat> flip on its head a little bit the narrative around who um constituted the forces that <coughs> sorry that overthrew the um the government and the claim that the left appears unable to accept the considerable segment of popular movements demanded the resignation of the government and this is because they can't see beyond the leaders of of the movements and i think that's an interesting um claim i don't um yeah i mean obviously the the point phil made stands that you um have to be against any any sort of military um overthrow but i think the analysis of the 
the movements that are that are demanding the overthrow of this government is not what I had, um, or is not the narrative that I'd previously been been um, exposed to on this um, on this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that there's a lot of fragmentation on the left there, and you know, a split really between uh, those who those supporters of MAS, the Movimento al Socialismo, Morales' party, uh, and various other organizations. I mean, the, the, the article points out, I mean, I assume readers will um, will read it or already have read this article in advance of listening to this, but, uh, you know, that the, the main trade union confederation pulled the support and, and asked Morales to step down. So, it yeah, it's a confusing picture. I think it's worth underlining two things. One is... There's a problem with a, with a certain left point of view, which says, well, we were on the streets demanding that the president step down. Therefore, this is our movement. Think Morales stepping down is a, a reflection of our force and our strength. Um, and so you can't call it a coup because you're taking away you know, our agency and, uh, you know, and, and the kind of practical work that we have done in, in put forcing him to step down uh, and ignoring the fact that there are bigger players involved here, um, perhaps more powerful players uh, who not only stand to benefit, but are, end up being the main actors in this. Um, and, the, and the second point, I guess, that flows on from this is, I guess, is it a coup? I mean, look, for me, I've been reading even the most sort of staid, liberal, think tank academic types on Twitter who have, are always very careful with their language, a little, often a little bit too careful. I think they often pull punches. Here they've been quite explicit. Yes, Morales, the election may have been fraudulent. Uh, he definitely shouldn't have ignored the uh, referendum against uh, extending term limits, which he did back in 2016. Um, there's lots of things that he's done wrong. Nevertheless, uh, this is a coup. And, you know, disliking Morales and thinking that there's fraud, it doesn't make it any less of a coup. So if even yeah. those guys are saying that, it's definitely a coup. Mm. I think there's I think there's another thing which we can say is that we might it might be worth seeing to what extent this is a coup. I mean, maybe that's a bit of a mealy-mouthed way of putting it. But basically, how we interpret what has just happened, you know, over Sunday night, for, well, over the, yeah, over the course of Sunday, where... First, Morales offered to step down and uh, and and hold new elections, and despite having done that, the military still pushed him out um, and made him flee. Um, that what happens next uh, in, impacts on how we see what already happened. So, you know, will what will happen with the new elections? Right, that happen. Will the military take power? Will they hold power for a determined period of time? Will they try to change the constitution? What will those elections look like? Mm. And so on. Um, you know, will there be privatizations in, in in an interim period? You know, that then makes it very much a coup. Uh, if it's a quick resumption in new elections uh, with Mas still able to stand and so on, you can say, yes, uh, it's very bad that the military got involved. It still maybe makes it a bit of a coup, but uh, it changes the the picture uh, quite a bit and also makes the role of the popular forces involved seem seem greater than, you know, and then that's basically what this argument puts forward in this article that popular forces have been very important here and i think that will be yeah yeah no no i think i think it's you know really really good points i guess there's a question about the wider perspective and how this links to obviously no not to plug previous episodes but other things that we've talked about in in latin america and whether it's um you know how we situate it in in relation to the response to the I don't know. Response to the end end of the pink tide, which is how we were, were um, framing the discussion around Argentina. 
Yeah, I mean, the um, I suppose it's interesting also, I guess, a striking um, coincidence, whereas Lula, uh, the um, formerly imprisoned president of Brazil, ex-president of Brazil, was just released um, from jail by order of a court um, at the same time. So one of the kind of um, most important leaders of the Latin American pink tide is released from jail. Another leader of the pink tide is forced to um, is forced to flee under threat from the military. And, kind of one one in one out. So uh, I guess just, um, that's one way to put it. Um, no trainers. It's, no it's, trainers. I mean, it's more. It's I suppose clear evidence of the fact that um, that tide has uh, that tide has fully petered out, and um, it was never. I mean, you know, as the very as its very name, pink tide suggests. It was never that red to begin with. And um, some of that comes across in this article, too, with the slightly with the discordant notes that it sounds, particularly towards the end, where um, it seems, I mean, it's framed from a kind of perspective of um, intersectionalist indigenism, I suppose you could call it, um, based around indigenous social movements, but also name checking, queer, feminist struggles. Um, drawing attention to Morales's failings on that score, um, but then also taking this kind of um, by portraying this um, complex picture, uh, it also takes this high-handed. It strikes this high-handed note at the end where it says it, that um, the properly kind of uh, left-wing, the indigenous movements and the um, intersectionalist movements should refuse to be baited by either side, should stand uh, apart from it. Uh, the con um, pointing out that uh, power is always corrupting and colonialist and patriarchal. It's remarkable to see all the kind of um, all the buzzwords of social and cultural theory in Western academia applied so immediately to a um, to an ongoing military and political struggle in what's still a poor Latin American nation, and also for it to justify this. Um, kind of detached neutrality in the midst of what's um, clearly a bitter and intense social and political conflict, which it seems to me it'd be very difficult to stand apart from. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would maybe, you know, that the criticism that, oh, this is importing Western cultural theory is maybe a form of Orientalism as well. I can't say that I know enough about Bolivia specifically, but knowing a bit about Latin America, I mean, these indigenous struggles, for example, are uh, organic. I mean, it's not an, an importation from uh, <laughs> from from Western academia. Um, and many I didn't of the, say it was. Many of the people I, didn't, argue, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't say it was imported. I mean, it's kind of what I want. Well, maybe if I did, I mean, that's not what I'm um, meant to put across. It's more that the. Um, like you say, kind of what are genuine um, organic social groups and movements within Bolivia are overlaid or encrusted with this language of um, queer feminism, post-colonial theory, patri you know, kind of the need to um, tackle patriarchy. And so it's um, it's a stray, it's odd, an odd thing to read, um, particularly because, like I say, it justifies, so pre presenting this kind of complex analysis, it justifies with effectively um political quietism it seems to me at the end of the article where it says we need to stand aloof both from the military and the far right but also from the pro-morales forces um who've and morales who's failed uh, to meet the needs of um 
Bolivian society. So it's this oddly well, I mean, yeah, quiescent but... attitude, which is justified. I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's quiescent. I mean, that's I mean, one that's of a piece well, with brought with many ultra left and neutral. It's, I don't think it's neutral. It's trying to say that we have our own struggle and it's our struggle. Uh, we're the ones who uh, have pushed Morales to this point. We're the ones who've broken with mass. And uh, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that, but it is a it is of a piece with various other ultra-left or Trotskyist movements as well who do the same thing everywhere. And, sure. And, and, and I mean, you know, I think it's of a piece with them for sure. And it's just, I suppose, like I say, it's... Um, it's, I suppose, not uh, not unexpected that it's uh, a move in a political stance that's larded by justification to the corrupting influence of power. All power is colonial, patriarchal, yeah. imperialist, always power is dangerous, particularly state power. The implication being that Morales has been corrupted by his um, attempt to wield power. Yeah. And that we need to maintain kind of detached, aloof, and movementist, effectively no, no, I, rather I, I, than I being agree. political. I, I agree. That, with that, I, I, I'm, I'm totally on board. There does there's this sort of anti-power um, thread running through, which which I would disagree with, and would make me a bit skeptical to mm-hmm. some of the other arguments made in the article, um, which just again highlights, at least at this early stage, of getting a real grasp on on what's going on. I mean, there's a very there's various good things you can read which are backdrops to this but in terms of what exactly is at stake right now um yeah it there, there isn't anything that i've read up to now where i'm like yeah i'm willing to to, tr- <laughs> to trust everything that's that's in here did, did phil use the phrase intersectionalist indigenism that's that's a very good good way to to describe it I'm not um, sure if that's even yeah. It's trade. It's trademarked. I'm afraid it was. I just quickly trademarked it while you were yeah. just talking about it. No, it's very. It's 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 very good. I think the um, <clears throat> also kind of insurrectionist or having a, a very um, yeah aloof. A, a, what's exactly the right word? Being a little bit dismissive of 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 power or scared of it, which of course is a good or an easy position for the left to take if if it's not within um, seizing distance. It's an yeah. interesting one, um, and maybe something which is kind of, um, it seems to have had a particularly, I don't know, you know, maybe there's more to be said here in, a, in an episode at a, diff, at a later point, mm-hmm. but it seems to be something which is has a real grip in Latin American politics in particular, um, you know, because you think that kind of the classic paradigm, of course, is the Zapatistas, where they explicitly build their whole model around um, refusing to seize state power, casting it as the participatory indigenous revival. Um, and, you know, it's not just the kind of movement, but also linked to theorists like Leclau and Esther Leclau, who was Argentinian, that um, there's a whole tradition, I suppose, of um, perhaps responding to Peronism and left populism and the failures of those regimes in the 20th century, that there's this uh, political philosophy and political and political movements and social movements that are then designed around eschewing state power, eschewing political power itself, um, seeing it as dangerous and alien and all the rest of it. Something mm. specifically, I mean, yeah, it's well not put. just yeah. unique to Latin America, but it seems to have roots in Latin America for sure. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think that's well put. Uh, I guess one point that I want to make, I guess, before we move on is uh, the case of Morales is yet another case of a, a certain failing of, of the pink tide in that it has, because of its disconnection, perhaps, or to a certain degree, treason of, of its kind of movementist roots, it lost support. And so when the coup comes in or when, you know, when when at least the military decides to take action because the popular pressures are too great, it's able to push Morales out precisely because 
the forces which brought him into power no, no longer fully have his back, which is a point this article um, makes as well. But it's one which, uh, you know, was seen with a kind of parliamentary coup in Brazil as well, where you didn't, the, the, the Workers' Party wasn't fully able to mobilize uh, the masses mm. to, this, to the degree that they would have liked to, to keep themselves in power. Uh, and so none of these governments has been able to ensure a sort of transition and to renew itself while, while in power. Um, anyway, but as you guys said, I think we should probably return to this at some point and do another big episode on um, on the end of the pink tide and what's happening now, because it looks like the continent as a whole is kind of is kind of in flames at the moment. It doesn't look like it's uh, that kind of entering a new cycle of turbulence in Latin America. Okay, so let's move on to the next article. Phil. Yeah, so this is the interview. The Well, it's got a tremendous amount of attention and interest, understandably. It's the interview The Economist magazine conducted with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, published uh, November 7th, 2019, so just about five days ago, um, from the date of recording at any rate. And it is really interesting on so many levels. It's a very lengthy interview and subscriber or listeners who don't subscribe to The Economist can register for free to get access to it and a limited number of other articles. Um, I put, put a pirated PDF up as well on, on Patreon ah, for those who can't. So. You go. <laughs> got your back, got your back, you're guys. Gonna, you're going to eat into <laughs> Phil's commission there. He was clearly... <laughs> Economist subscriptions for some reason. Um, <laughs> I wish. It's uh, it's worth reading. What I was going to say was anyway, um, it's worth reading in full. And you see like the cold, the cold reptilian intelligence that lurks behind that rubber gimp mask of a face um, as he kind of surveys uh, the current political scene and outlook. And it's, I suppose the thing that's most interesting about it in many ways is you can just see like all the kind of liberal, all the um, confused, inconsolable um, liberal centrists who would just cream their shorts when they read this um, because they see here somebody who kind of will espouse everything that they stand for um, in terms of uh, vague ideas, you know, glorifying Europe, vague ideas about humanism and climate change and all these big global issues which keep them awake at night and that we need to tackle and all this nonsense. Um, but presented also presented in a kind of um, in a, with some kind of historic backdrop and some limited measure of intelligence, which will make them feel as if they're um, big and important and thinking about grand things. It's a remarkable interview, and he makes some some telling uh, some telling points about um, about how he sees things, and I think also what he has uh, envisioned for Europe. So some of the big things for which it's been kind of received a lot of press attention are his the fact that he's shut out um, the former the republics of the former Yugoslavia from EU enlargement. He's basically cut off EU enlargement. He said he's made this frank kind of acknowledgement that Donald Trump has no particular interest in um, protecting Europe with NATO the way America has in the past. And this also reaches back to Obama. It's not just Trump. He says, um, maybe most kind of importantly, from a hard-nosed geopolitical perspective, that Europe needs to cut a deal with Putin and that Putin effectively and Russia in the long term has no choice but to cut a deal with Europe. 
and he presents an image that Europe needs to um he talks in terms very revealingly I think where he talks in terms of sovereignty European sovereignty but what he really means is French sovereignty so he kind of just slips and slides between uh, kind of talking basically about French power and European power. And here he returns, obviously, to the old Gaullist idea of Europe, basically, as a way to boost France higher on the world stage, um, maybe with a bit more blue blue and gold gloss than de Gaulle would have given it. Um, but it's there nonetheless. He's clearly kind of, he sees no difference between the interests of France and the interests of Europe as a whole. Mm, I think uh, before moving on to talk about the substantive content of the article, it's just striking again how um, well managed the, the the presentation of Macron himself is. Um, so it, as it says, during the interview, however, the president is in a de- defiant but relaxed mood, sitting in shirt sleeves on the black leather sofa he's installed in the ornate salon door where Charles de Gaulle used to work. It's like that's that's perfect. That's kind of centrist catnip because he's defiant but relaxed that's how he sh- how he should be serious things to do but he's got something to, to contribute <laughs> and he's got his, his shirt sleeves in, in that black leather sofa so it's a bit of a bit it's of kind, kind of, of dangerous that, that, that black yeah. leather wipes down the cum stains pretty easily so well it's <laughs> um um yeah, but no but it's so that's that's it. and hadn't we sort of um haven't we already got bored of that kind of obama rolled up sleeves or that that blairite presentation it's i don't know it's 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 it reminds me of that photo that was um extremely carefully constructed of 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 him with his uh all of his his props of of being forward forward looking but respectful of, of french tradition at the same time um but yeah i mean <clears throat> cold intelligence that's an an apposite phrase i think very very well put phil that's how he comes across i i found it um a lot more intelligent than i expected um a lot more perspicacious and a lot more forthright as well i mean i think phil you've already hinted at this with him saying like well you know the u.s isn't really interested in nato or it sees it in a much more transactional uh nate in a more transactional relationship okay fine let's go with that then but we need to then rethink what nato is going to be um and and actually it's interesting that a lot of it uh, considered uh refers to kind of strategic military elements. Uh, And the reason for this is, or the reason why it's interesting, is that it starts off by an acknowledgement that, you know, oh, this great Europe that we've built up, that we've managed uh, to create a a post-hegemonic situation in Europe, as if he forgets yeah, I mean, about Amer- so, as if he forgets about American hegemony, and like a paragraph later, you know, in the, in this interview, he goes. Uh, Moreover, Europe was basically built to be the Americans' junior partner. It's like, yeah, exactly. That's the important point, you know. But uh, also German hegemony as well. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. Know, the, so the idea that um, it's kind of fascinating because he presents, um, you know, he presents that kind of post-historic idea of Europe as this post-historic paradise, this great kind of enclave of. Um, peace and prosperity and plenty as if the you know the crash hasn't happened and the eurozone crisis hasn't been um destroying the economies of southern europe as you know as we've covered on the podcast so he presents this kind of um fantasy vision in the same breath as pretending to present all this hard hard-edged lucid um political realist take about how we need strategic rapprochement with russia and all of this kind of stuff so it's this kind of remarkable blend of um complete fantasy and then this um, kind of faux hardness of making hard-headed calculations and decisions. 
Um, and the idea that Europe has transcended hegemony. I mean, it's just, it's literally insane. And he, he must know that, right? Because he knows the Germans are paying for France. He, he comes across as kind of a, a, a realist uh, idealist in a way. So he's, he's, he's constantly creating this idea of Europe, which doesn't correspond to the material reality of, of German dominance. Um, but at the same time as this, this kind of um, very idealist, which I, you know, I thought that was a characteristic of German philosophy. But um, at the same time as he's he's relying on this idea of Europe, which is obviously um, Franco-centric, he's also saying, yeah, we need to be hard nosed about um, the the necessity of cutting a deal with of Putin, which reveals maybe he was a sleeper agent all along. Um, but yeah, so he's it is a strange combination of his um, fantasies of what of what Europe really is or means in in it, in, in its idea, and then the uh, necessities of of negotiating the the um, best route for that completely idealized um, view of Europe through um, kind of global power politics. Well, I think what's what it's along similar lines to what George is saying. It's interesting that he in this interview seems to want to recuperate uh, something from the breakdown of neoliberalism, and he does that through an emphasis on hard power. So. It, you know, he, he says some interesting things talking about, you know, the dominant ideology through the 90s and 2000s was uh, had the flavor of the end of history. Uh, so there will be no more great wars. Tragedy has left the stage. All is wonderful. The overriding agenda. So we need economic. to replace basically we need to replace our logo of Sylvia with um, Emmanuel. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. But I'm good with the with the retro feels of Silvio because Macron's too, too now and it's too disgusting. Like Silvio could be a kind of fetishized distant image. Um, that's my justification for having to look at his face every day. Anyway, so I think there's a passage here where he describes this kind of the response to, you know, certain things that he's quite explicit about, about in terms of, um, populist, uh, populist breakthroughs, whether it be expressions of nativism or, uh, lack of support for for free markets and so on he he says is that uh, europe was driven by a logic whose primary whose primacy was economic an underlying belief that was basically that the market economy suits everyone well and that's not true or not anymore we have to draw conclusions it's the return of a strategic agenda of sovereignty so it's interesting so he goes yeah okay so people aren't really happy with uh, the neoliberal order as it was and the way to respond to that is by projecting power externally uh, and by a more kind of geopolitical re- realism. Uh, so, yeah. it, it, <laughs> and and that's quite important, I think, because that and that would point the way as well uh, towards a way of neoliberalism trying to resolve its crisis uh, precisely through um, yeah through through greater protectionism perhaps, but also through the projection of external power. Do you think the protection of external sovereignty being so important has anything to do with the problems of French sovereignty internally? I mean, is that the is that that's the explanation? It. But that's it. But it's exactly so. When he talks about sovereignty, it's never clear whether he's talking about French, the sovereignty of the French nation state, the kind of classical paradigmatic liberal nation state, or he's talking about um, the sovereignty of a federal single European superstate, and that's probably deliberate. But it's something France which has always be, melded the um, two anyway. Yeah, exactly. But it's something which can't be, um, you know, it's something which actually can't be resolved. 
So there's a tension which he simply doesn't he doesn't resolve. He doesn't offer. A, he doesn't actually come down clearly one way or the other. The interviewers um, who aren't don't seem very bright, you know, evidently because they don't actually they don't push him on that, and they also don't push him on the really hard question. They probably didn't ask him because they know that he wouldn't like it, which is who's going to bankroll your fantasy European superpower because it's obviously not going to be France. It's got to be Germany, and that's something you know that would just expose the kind of whole in the whole vision that he's trying to portray. Mm. And and to to take your question up of, you know, is it is it referring to a certain kind of internal sovereignty, is it fr- the French nation nation state, or is it uh, at a European level? You know, it's there. He I think there's a moment where he refers obliquely to the gilet jaune and the kind of. You know, we, we've had some social, you know, the, the social element has been <laughs> disturbed or something like that. Um, some very euphemistic way of, <laughs> of of referring to this mass social movement that's been going on for more than a year that severely challenges authority. And he, and he again, it's the response to that is, well, I mean, obviously not more democracy. I mean, that doesn't presumably even cross his mind. Uh, it's really just, okay, well, people feel that they need to be more protected. So we need to do more as through through kind of great power politics, effectively. Mm. I think there's a lot more. I mean, there's a lot in this. Um, there's, it's obviously, it's going to be a kind of uh, an interview that's referred to for a very long time. People are going to be um, using it as a baseline to refer to a polit- particular political vision of Europe at this moment. Um, for many years, I think it's going to be given as a paradigmatic statement of how uh, the European Union tried to recover from Brexit, from the crisis in Ukraine, the crisis in Syria, and from the election of Donald Trump. Um, and so, and there's a lot more to it than we've managed to discuss. Um, and I think it's worth, but you know, it's uh, it's worth reading through. I think because it's going to be defining questions of political order and European order for many years to come. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo that. I think that I just wanted to pull out one other element, which I found interesting, because, I mean, there's various other kind of foreign policy things he addresses with regard to, you know, North Macedonia and Albania and whatever. But one of the kind of pull away things is that he says, uh, you know, uh, a kind of pulling away from humanitarian intervention, uh, liberal imperialism, however you want to put it, um, that he says, you know, before, you know, I want humanism and I'm going to pose it on others. Uh, and he distances himself from that um, by, by suggesting that, you know, we need to we need to be a little bit more realistic. Yeah, at the same time, there was justifying the bombing of Syria, taking the bombing of Syria's um, chemical weapons um, facilities, supposedly, Um which, I mean, they bombed like empty, you know, kind of empty shells of what had been left behind by the Syrian army. But taking that as some great kind of strategic victory and claiming that as a great strategic victory for Europe, it's very odd. At the same time as saying we need to roll back, um, sovereignty is something that we all have to appreciate the importance of. Everyone's forgotten about it. And then in the next breath, defending humanitarian intervention in Syria, being unwilling to specify whether he means the sovereignty of a European superstate or the sovereignty of France, it's um, deep contradictions, I think, which probably indicate the weaknesses at the core of Macronism as a project and what, which will become apparent um, the longer and longer we have to put up with his slimy reptilian face in the news and the longer that he stays in the Elysee um, ruling with his riot cops and with the CRS against the Gilets Jaunes. Rubber bullet liberalism. His sneer of cold command. Yeah, as exactly. It, as it were. 
rubber bullet liberalism at home, cruise missile liberalism abroad. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on to the third of our three articles, George. <clears throat> yeah, so the the article I wanted to share, I guess it's an example of what um, podcasters can achieve if they really put their, their mind to something. Um, so this is from the, the Washington Post um, yesterday. Uh, and so the headline is, A Californian economist loves neoliberalism. When, Ch- when Chilean started protesting it, he opened fire. Um, and this is a... um yeah it's it's one of the maddest things that i've read in in quite a while i I think there's an internal logic to his position that i think we should um we should uh excavate as it were so explain explain his position so yeah so so this is um an american economist and former member of a neo-confederate group um who's very passionate about free market ideas very passionate about um chile and basically he drove through um, some crowds protesting in in Chile and um, opened fire. I mean, it's it is a funny story, but also he did shoot um, five. Well, he he injured at least one person and shot five protesters. Um, yeah, so he said shortly before he was arrested, I did not do anything wrong. It was a very dangerous, very scary time for me. Thankfully, I had my gun to be able to defend myself. So. Um, yeah, I think the the thing really to explore here is is why do you have somebody who feels that this is the um, the right um, uh, I guess stance to take to defend neoliberalism? In one way, I think it's a very good example of a sort of neoliberal counter revolution. You have this completely individualized, atomized individual taking action. He's an entrepreneur of of um, I don't know of the counter-revolution and he's shooting entrepreneur uh, of state violence. Yeah. He's a libertarian, a libertarian <laughs> freelancing he's... in support of an yeah. oppressive, a brutally oppressive kind of government police force against anti-government protesters. I mean, it's so kind of bizarre and convoluted by his own logic. Here's, here's the non-aggression. Um, Here, this is the non-aggression. State power. This is the non-aggression principle. I'm just going to be very aggressive against you. And then when you try to defend yourself, I'm going to defend myself because I'm against aggression. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. So when we dig a, a bit deeper into his um, into his background, we can see some some um, useful, interesting facts. The first thing which I really the alluded to. The warning signs were there. Uh, he he um, uh, hosted, uh, I'm well, not sure if he's still hosting, I, I guess probably not, a talk show in Chile called Red Hot Chile. Pretty good name. Yeah. Pretty Kudos good. for the name, yeah, definitely. Um, Those props for the name. Yeah, um, he uh, branded himself the the biggest neoliberal in the, in the entire uh, country. He's um, had a failed um, bid for a congressional seat in South Carolina on a libertarian uh, ticket. I mean, this definitely brings to mind Connor Roy in Succession. Um, if you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch <laughs> yes. it. So it's kind of him, but he's just getting shit done. Um, yeah, and basically... I think he, so Phil, you said he was freelancing, but there's no indication he got paid. I think that means he's a real true neoliberal, that he's just, he's seen a gap and he's just, he's just going to fill it and then he'll, he'll get paid. He doesn't, you know, he's got to grind true. He's not getting grind paid. So if he was getting, that shows actually he's not a very good libertarian. So he's working for free for the cops. He's interning. Um, he's an unpaid intern. Seem, yeah. Well, I guess maybe you could, yeah, maybe unpaid intern. That That's part of 
a good kind of neoliberal capitalist vision. But, um, you know, beyond that, doesn't seem to be very successful. Also, he um, set up a Galtz Gulch or something. Is that right? Yeah, Galtz Gulch, which is like named after the um, capitalist paradise that Ayn Rand portrayed in her um, loathsome novel, um, Atlas Shrugged, where John Galt, the hero, the libertarian hero of the novel, has his um, kind of capitalist uh, utopian colony. And so this this um, crazy dude also did the same in Chile, apparently, as well as part of some of his um, some of his uh, little projects in Chile. Although he he did uh, split and and uh, found a competing one um, called Freedom Orchard. Uh, yeah. So just a, a bit more on, on the backstory of um, this guy called Cobin, uh, John Cobin. So he's actually um, he's got a professor with a PhD in public policy. So he's, um, yeah, he's translating theory to to praxis, which you know, good good for him. Um, yeah, I was. <laughs> I was... <laughs> that was so lame. I, got... good, good, I didn't good, hear good which... for him. <laughs> didn't hear which of the two of you uh, were laughing that. But yeah, I think um, it's. Maybe it, to take a step back, it does reflect a more serious point in in Chile that there's it's an extremely, um, you know, f- frantic, um, free ball, uh, frantic and fast moving situation, and people are being drawn into the, you know, into the um, the conflict with a, with varying levels of coherence of their ideas. I think it also shows a degree, a kind of certain historical irony. I mean, the guy moved to Chile in like, I think, 96 or something because he thought it, <laughs> he thought that uh, the U.S. was too dominated by PC culture and that and not didn't respect property enough and didn't respect the family enough. So he moved to Chile, uh, the supposedly neoliberal paradise, but, you know, very with very conservative elements, too. And, you know, as a, as a placard uh, in the Chilean protest has it, you know, uh, neoliberalism was born in Chile and it'll die here too um, and all power to the protesters trying to trying to kill it um, but the the stories are remarkable because it's like if this if, if it were a script and it landed on my desk as a film producer I would reject it not because it was too crazy but because it was too perfect it was it feels too um, it feels too cliched it feels too stereotyped every little bit fits too well it's like again yeah like one of those you couldn't make it up moments where you know this guy is uh, a libertarian neoliberal and white supremacist and i think exemplifies quite well the the overlap between those Mm, he's at the center of the venn diagram of those of those three um but yeah i i think we should we should follow his follow his story see what actually happens to him um because he's been arrested and presumably will be will be prosecuted. Um, so yeah, he was a kind of one man neoliberal new model army, but he wasn't he wasn't able to 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 achieve anything. All right, well I guess we will leave that there. Uh, we, we'll, maybe we'll try to fill you in, listeners, on uh, on on the fortunes and misfortunes of of this uh, libertarian nut job in a future episode. That's it for now. Uh, if you like us, please leave us a review. Give, feed, give us feedback as well on Patreon, what you thought of this, uh, if you're still liking this format and so on. Uh, we will be back with more stuff. Uh, we posted this on social media today if you want to check, but uh, just to announce it here, we'll have stuff on political algorithms coming up soon. Uh, who is in charge of the algorithms? Who's responsible for the discourse uh, and for who sees what on social media? 
we are having two episodes on the UK elections, one which is for patrons only, lucky you guys, where we'll venture some predictions on what's going to happen and a post-election uh, show which will be public. And coming up uh, right at the very end of the year, it'll be our last episode of the year, is our 100th episode, uh, something special coming up for that. So keep an eye out for that. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.